The Timeless Podcast Company present this podcast. In immersive sound design. We had a call with Tom Brown, head of Lex Records, the label based in London that had released the Danger Doom album and subsequently signed Doom to a multi-album worldwide deal. Tom reflects on the beginning of their working relationship as elusive as it was. I'm Tom Brown from Lex Records. Lex is an independent label based in North London. It's our 20th anniversary this year. I worked with Doom for most of that period at first remotely, which is probably the same way most people work with Doom. You get drawn into his mysterious world. We'd signed a guy called Danger Mouse. Danger Mouse ended up producing the whole Gorillaz album, and he was working with Doom and got Doom to record the November Has Come verse. You know, like so many people say that's their entry point. I was convinced at the end of the Gorillaz record, hearing what they did with Doom, it, it was amazing. So I suppose that was the first kind of contact with Doom. You know, he'd done a couple of beats and verses for us. And then he started doing this uh, Adult Swim project, the, you know, what became the Danger Doom. And it was getting recorded at the same time as Niles Barkley and, and the Gorillaz. And all three projects were kind of moving along at the same time. And all the way through that, I've never met Doom. I've never met You know, we were releasing, you know, we ended up, we released the Danger Doom album, most of the world outside of America. Um, you know, I was in the charts in the UK, we sold tens of thousands of copies. I get up in the morning, I catch Danger Mouse in the studio in Los Angeles. I get up and try not to wake up my girlfriend at the time. I'd be having like a whispered phone call with Danger Mouse and he'd be filling me in on each of the projects and what's going on. But yeah, I didn't meet, I didn't meet Doom for about another three or four years. One day, and it was probably, it was Valentine's Day. I think it was 2005. And Danger Mouse phoned me up and he was like, Doom hasn't got a record deal. So I was like, what do you mean? You know, he's got like 10 record deals. He's doing Victor Vaughan, you know, he's, he's putting out solo stuff. And he was like, yeah, but he's not signed to anyone. Like he's unsigned. But he was like, you've got to sign him. He's the most incredible unsigned artist. I can't believe anybody hasn't signed him, you know, especially after Danger Doom. We put together a humongous deal and signed him for the world on a multi-album deal, like big exclusive deal. And I still hadn't met And briefly at that time, we had a kind of upstream deal with EMI. You know, now EMI is like a brand name that Universal owns. But back then, EMI was, you know, like a British conglomerate. And they just threw money at it. Doom's lawyer would come back and go, oh, we've got a bigger offer and boss of EMI would just go, cool, we'll, we'll be here. I don't think he probably even listened to any of the music. It, it became quite a big deal and we signed him. It was going on for a long time and I hadn't met him. And the creation of Born Like This took a really long time. All Doom's albums, you know, there was old material on there that he pulled together and new stuff, you know, things that were topical that he was rapping about that were in the news or, you know, like, stuff that he was proud of that he'd been working a few years earlier. And I don't know how far back his his verses went, how far back the bars went, but he had a lot of notebooks, stacks and stacks of notebooks on all the projects that we worked on. He resurrected, you know, everybody knows he resurrected old beats. 
and sometimes you got a pass for that and sometimes you didn't but some of the stuff you know some of it was really special the you know like gazillionaire especially we didn't really stay in touch during that period we talked to him i met him a couple of times one time he swung by the standard downtown and i met him you know we talked on the rooftop for ages nobody recognized him you know he's really excited he'd been hanging out with uh, nas and kelly's you know he's excited about what what could happen born like this and so on and then the next morning uh, you know like i got a call from the front desk and they're like somebody's left you a package here and i went down and it was like a brown envelope and i opened it and it was a shard of amethyst doing what the fuck and he was like oh that's a communication crystal so i got this big crystal in mexico and i've smashed it into shards and I've given one to everybody who's working on this project and that will keep you in touch with each other you know not on email because I might not get back to the emails <laughs> but that was the idea and so there's often a kind of esoteric edge to things and I don't know how much it was kind of like post-rationalization as we've talked about before Doom treasured his anonymity and the mass certainly helped that but his practice of sending out decoys in the mask at shows had already begun. Doom looked at it as an art project, a project that his worldwide record label, Lex Records and EMI Records, found difficult times to deal with, especially when they are trying to market, promote, and ultimately make him as successful as he could be. The imposter thing, you know, the, the robots, he'd call them robots. And, you know, he, he'd say, it's an art project. You know, like I was going, you know, you're getting all your biggest fans to pay, you know, tens of dollars each for a ticket and then letting them down 1,000 fans at a time <laughs> across the country. And he'd be like, no, no way. It's going to be like, you know, like by the end of this, I'm going to have like a, you know, like a 10 year old Chinese girl coming out in a mask and people will understand where it's coming from. But, you know, he'd often think of like fantastical reasons for really being kind of quite a private person that needed to be aloof and have that space. All the records came with a crystal, like a chunk of amethyst. And the inside of the mask actually, like an official mask, was covered kind of crushed amethyst shards. Has anyone mentioned it? A kind of spiral of copper or some kind of metal and some more stuff, but it was like a, a mystical crystal mask on the inside. You know, it, it, it isn't what you'd expect and throughout the whole thing there was a lot of effort put into esoteric mystical things that i didn't understand tom recalls the making of born like this which included collaborations with the legendary jay dilla rest in peace mad lib and tom york of radiohead so yeah born like this the funnest bit for me was we were gonna get we wanted to put bonus track iTunes version. They actually mailed out the album to everybody the day it came out on the iTunes mailing list and we sold you know, a really big chunk of albums off the back of that. And it was because it had a bonus track that we'd given them. And it was a Tommy York remix. And it was an unusual thing, but you know, there was definitely going to be some crossover between Radiohead fans and, and Doom fans. Not much, and it was kind of an experimental thing, you know, we, we were just giving it a go. Doom had sent the acapella to Tom. Tom did the remix and Doom was like you know it just doesn't quite work and we were talking about it on the phone he was like beats too fast for the vocal and I was like well, why don't you just re-record it you know you put the phone down 
and really just like five minutes later sent back the track with the new kind of double time vocal over the top of this Tom York beat. It really worked, it brought it to life and he liked the challenge and that kind of became a theme going forward. So during that album campaign, he came over to Europe for the first time to do shows, you know, like obviously he was born in the UK. He, he came over for the first time. He got a really big fee for a show. He turned up for it. I couldn't believe it. Got out of the car. They sent out an imposter on stage. Everyone booed and then Doom came out. And he, he came back a couple of times after that and he'd gone back to America. Well, he did try to get back to America with a bag carrying his mask, a lot of cash from his shows, and the added wrinkle of actually being a UK citizen with a UK passport and a sprinkling of other legal obstacles. Doom was not permitted to leave the UK. Tommy had a, you know, like a hole full of cash with the, the mask in it. And they stopped him and, you know, took him into an interview room and ended up sending him back. You know, he didn't have papers, he wasn't naturalized, he had a UK passport. And, uh, you know, like he, he ended up in London completely you know, without anything. You know, a long time after his solo album, you know, a, a year or two, and he, he just finished a, a big world tour, so he had some cash. But after that, you know, like he was, he was in a, a strange city. He had some relatives across town. The first thing he asked us to do was to, he said he really wanted to work and see if there was any like, you know, like remixes, guest appearances, anyone wanted beats, that kind of thing. And he started working I think it was around that time that he was based in London. He was based, you know, a few minutes from our office. He was he was living, you know, at the start, certainly a few months, maybe a year with Will from Lax. And Will had a tiny little home studio and a nice bedroom and a sofa. And he gave Doom the sofa and went out to work and came back one day. And from then on, Doom had his nice bedroom. <laughs> and Will was on the sofa he just ejected him and Doom would spend most of his time there working in the studio and uh, sleepy all day stay up at night and so on and then you know we hooked him up with uh, a flat an apartment um, and you know just everything was tricky you know like you know it's like renting a place but imagine if you just turned up and you never lived in that country before Doom has now made London his home he's got his own flat a record deal and is now master planning his next moves He's hanging out with Tom Brown in his new car and driving around London listening to Aphex Twin. And that opens up new ideas. I had fairly nippy three series BMW. I don't know if it came out then, but like the whole Aphex Twin analog, you know, like all the kind of old, old school sounding analog Aphex Twin acid techno thing that came out on Reflex Records in a series. And it was like, on my 50 tracks or 80 tracks and we're driving around listening to to this like fairly obscure Aphex Twin stuff and he just really kind of got into it I think and he asked me to burn it for him you know back then you still burn stuff for people so burn them all the analog stuff and he said he was chopping up the tracks into loops and rhyming over them and I never heard any Aphex Twin stuff but then when all the people that we'd hit up that wanted a doom verse or you know like something from him had dried up for the time being he wanted to start making a record doom had been working with janeiro jarell jj had moved in next door with dave sitek 
um, who was producer from TV on the radio. I knew a tiny bit and JJ had moved in next door to him and TV on the radio would flow within a month. And Doom had been by their studio, they recorded a couple of tracks. JJ had ended up going out on tour as Doom's tour DJ and hype man. Janeiro was signed to Lex and they had loads of friends in common, like Count Basie and the same kind of scene. They'd spent quite a bit of time together and I asked for, you know, beats from all the kind of people you'd expect to make a Doom record and Doom just started working with JJ's stuff. And I always thought that it was because he'd been listening to Aphex at that point really recently. JJ would make a beat and it would often have like a really weird bit at the start and a really weird bit at the end. And Doom just started looping up the weird bits of the beats. And most of the beats were like that, you know, like definitely banished was, was three intros or outros kind of stuck together. And he, he said he was sick of people saying, you know, he said that he, he got emails the whole time from producers going, you know, like, you know, well-known producers that he was working with going, oh, I've got a Doom type beat. I made this Doom type beat for you. Can you rap, rap over this Doom type beat? Or here's some Doom type beats for your next album. And he, he said he was just sick of, and maybe it was like being in London and all the changes in his life, you know, it was a real jolt, you know, he, everything was different, you know, but he, I think he really felt like he needed to make a different kind of record. And the, you know, with the JJ Doom record, I think that was what he was doing. And there was some old verses on there, you know, like there was a, a kind of repurposed um, Mad Villain track that had never come out. They took the vocals off and some of the stuff that he'd been working on with other producers that I'd heard different versions of the track, you know, he, he repurposed the, the vocals. But on the whole, you know, you can hear from it like Winter Blues or Governor or Banished or, you know, like most of the album is, is written about and trying to get to grips with it emotionally and it's it's quite a weird record because it's doom hated to show emotion for whatever reason i often thought he had a good helping of like tony soprano stick you pick up the pieces and you go on from there so that's what we're gonna do and even in this fucked up day and age that means something oh. 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 like that was what he was trying to pull off you know like he was trying to be have all this mayhem around him and be uh, be a, like a rap Tony Soprano. You know, he really had it going on. You know, like he, had, he had the hustle and, you know, he had a family and he had business and, you know, you know I'm sure other people have touched on it, but you know, like if you were behind the scenes on the Doom show, it was like a stick up. It was like mayhem. But yeah, I think he, you know, fell out of place. He, he, he had a real problem with even talking about having any emotion towards anything, which he obviously did. He was a really warm-hearted person, but he didn't think it was cool. But on JJ Doom, it's a really emotional record. You know, if you listen, listen to Winter Blues, you know, in the Doom persona, he wouldn't normally mention a woman or a love interest or a, a wife or a, he just wouldn't do it. He'd change character. So he'd, he'd rap as Victor Vaughan on Mad Villain on Fancy Clown. But the JJ Doom record wasn't like that. It wasn't like that with the beats either, you know? And, you know, he, he was he was always incredibly proud of any record he was working on. And I think that the Norwegian Doom record 
was a direct reaction to him not thinking he got the the props, the respect that he deserved on JJD. He was like, okay, so that's too futuristic. And Norwegian Doom, at the time, Bishop was one of the highest young MCs in the world, or in America, which is where it counts most. And you know, he was co-signed by Nas, he was co-signed by Doom, he was co-signed by Ghostface. And you know, there, there was just a, a really great energy there, and him and Doom met up, started recording face to face. And I think the last unheard Doom beats are on that record. And the whole album could have been original Doom beats because Bishop got all original beats and folders of the special herbs beats. And he just wrapped over the ones that he wanted. And it was a production record. And I don't know, I think he was really proud of it. I think at the time on each project, he, you know, he put everything into it. I think, I might be wrong again, but I think the last two projects, like with um, JJ Doom, every skit was put together by him. Somewhere I'll have three or four different versions of all the skits and, you know, several versions of the verses. And, you know, a lot of the beats he took, JJ's beats, like I said, and put them together. And he was just meticulous in it. And he'd go back and master it over and over again. You run up these huge bills at the mastering studio just because you'd go and sit in there for a whole day with an engineer. And then at the end of it, he wouldn't hand it over. And he'd go back again the next week and do it again. And it was like the opposite of not caring. And so I think the, the problem with the robots had turned off so many people. I said to him once, you know, he was going, you know, I'll stop sending robots out when people stop buying tickets and listening to my music. And I was like, you know, people still listen to Michael Jackson. It doesn't mean they like everything that he does. But I, I think the robot thing was like, you know, just took his his biggest fans, you know, like everybody felt like a really deep connection to him. Like, he wouldn't really do that to me, would he? Oh yeah, shit. I, I was at one of those gigs actually in, in LA early on, after we'd signed him, before I'd met him, and everyone was there. The whole room was full of like, the Los Angeles hip hop scene. He sent out somebody, some skinny, skinny guy, poor bastard, to get booed and you know, like mime to a CD playback. I don't know, it just it, it kind of undermined things, and it, it was weird because I think it goes back to that kind of mayhem that he wanted to have around him. You know, he wanted to generate the energy of hustling people. You know? Probably realized that like. The whole Doom thing wasn't like one big happy family with everybody on this podcast. It was like, I, you would compartmentalize people and cut them off. And eventually, I got cut off after years of seeing him you know, like two or three times a week. He, he was the only person, you know, I've got a wife and kids. He was the only person I hung out with because I, I, I don't have that kind of free time. But, um, uh, you know, I spent a fuck of a lot of time with Doom. And he was, he was a really cool guy. It was like having a big brother. Did I ever tell you the one about MF Doom Podcast is a timeless podcast company production. Executive produced by Chantel Barron, Michael Barron, and Eric DJ Eclipse Wynn. 
Co-produced and mixed by Brett Epignazer. Sound design and sound editing by Nick Digler-Davila. Research director, Miles J. Barron. Senior creative director, Mar Norton for Poison Pen Graphics. Graphic design director, Shai Harari for H1 Media. Featuring Ben Klingon, Dell of the Hieroglyphics Crew, Dimbaza Dumoulay, Dinko D of Leaders of the New School, Graham Poopa Maxwell, Jason DeMarco, Just Blaze, Curious George, Cotty, Lionel the Vid Kid Martin, Lord Jamal, Lord Seer, Miles Brown, MF Grimm, Milo from Leaders of the New School, Onyx the Birthstone Kid of KMD, Prince Power Rule, Ralph McDaniels, Talib Kwali, Tanji Dumoulay, Tom Brown, Wild Child, Yasin Bey, and Young Guru. Special thanks to the city of Long Beach, Mark Healy in the Rockaway Wave, Far Rockaway Queens, New York, Brandon G, Tom Wheelie, Ben King, Stephen S. Sidman, Video Music Box. Timeless podcast sound design voiceover, Tembisa Mashaka. Music cues and scoring for this podcast have been provided by Portal. That's P-R-T-L. Music comes in all vibes, so lo-fi should too. Welcome to Portal, the world's first lo-fi music in all genres for all types of music fans. Whether you love hip-hop, reggaeton, country, alt-rock, EDM, or even basso, Portal has lo-fi vibes to match your music tastes. Find Portal on YouTube or Spotify or anywhere you listen to lo-fi. Portal, P-R-T-L, lo-fi for every vibe.